Welcome to the next version of the P5 podcast. Today, I have Marianne Block from the Block Center, whom I first met back in May of 97 and have come to know quite well over the years. I've been a big fan. Um, She's helped me raise my kids from time to time when we've hit difficult problems. And she's, uh, I guess, as much as anyone, a medical detective, but someone that I've found has a unique ability to find the source of problems and solve them. Uh, So welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, And so I'd, I think listeners would love to hear uh, your personal story um, and how you got into this field, which was not something you did straight out of college. That's right. Um, So I'd, I'd love for you to just talk about about your history and how how you got to your practice of medicine and then maybe we can get a little more interactive sure uh, so I was a young mother with two young children and very very happy being a homemaker and involved with my kids uh, every way possible and in their schools and everything but when my daughter was seven um, she, had developed these chronic bladder infections and doctors tried different medications and they did different tests on her and really couldn't seem to stop them. Uh, So one doctor prescribed two medications that were actually psychiatric drugs. One was Valium, the antidepressant, and the other was Tofranil, which is another antidepressant. And they were prescribed for their side effects on the bladder. And honestly, I thought it was kind of crazy. So I questioned the doctor, but he said, now, now you have to do what I say or your child will never get better. So, you know, I'm a young mother. I don't know any better. And I did what he said. And it turned out that doing what he said meant my child may never get better. Uh, turns out that, uh, the drugs actually didn't stop the bladder infections. And when the doctor decided to stop the medications, he told me to stop them cold turkey. And at the time, again, I'm not a doctor. I didn't know that cold turkey withdrawal from Valium can actually be fatal. Uh, But I did what he said again. And my daughter went through this extreme withdrawals from it and, and got very, very sick. In fact, she was sick for a year with all kinds of different infections that were seemed to be a response to this cold turkey withdrawal of these medications. And I spent another year trying to get her well, trying to, you know, going from doctor to doctor. And all they really wanted to do was just give her more drugs. And one doctor went so far as to say that it was all in her head. <laughs> it was like... Uh, no, I don't think so. I finally came across a DO and I had not been to a DO before, doctor, doctor of osteopathic medicine. And, uh, he, though he called himself a medical detective and I really felt that was what I needed at this point. And I went, took my daughter to this doctor and he did figure out not only what he could do to make her well from the side effects of the medications, but also from the bladder infections themselves. And I was so inspired by the approach this doctor took. Cause I'd never been to a doctor that didn't just say, what's your symptom? Here's your drug. And he was so intent on finding the root cause of problems that I made the decision then that I needed to go to medical school to protect my family. Because if I didn't know what doctors knew, then I couldn't protect them from something like this happening again. And uh, not too long after, I went back to undergraduate school to get my prerequisites and applied to osteopathic medical school and started. And uh, yes, now I'm a doctor. So, um, you know, my daughter's well. And I was about six months out of my training When my mother was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer and MD Anderson gave her two months to live and I was devastated, but I've thought, you know, doctors didn't know about my daughter. Maybe they don't know about my mother. And I pulled together, 
every alternative treatment I could find, along with the conventionals that the doctors were recommending. And instead of being dead in two months, she was completely in complete remission four months later. And uh, you're not supposed to say cured in, in cancer, but when you live 18 more years to the age of 92 and never have cancer again, I think she was cured. And uh, so this whole process has taught me that, number one, doctors don't know everything. And two, most of the time, they're not looking for that root cause. And I decided to dedicate my practice to doing that and with a special focus on ADHD and autism and certainly other things as well. But a big part of my practice has been ADHD and autism, getting kids diagnosed with ADHD off drugs, finding the root cause of their problem and allowing them to have their lives back and learn and, and do well. And with autism, oftentimes being able to bring those children back to you know, neurotypical where they started out before they were, became disabled. So it's been very, very satisfying. Uh, very, very much so. And, um, so, so the block center you're in, you're now, I guess, formerly in Fort Worth, but you've been in the Dallas Fort Worth area for all, all of your history, right? Right. Yes. I, I moved to Fort Worth about two years ago, which is closer to my home than where I was, uh, between Dallas and Fort Worth. How, how long since you, when did you graduate? I never, I don't know if I ever knew I that. I graduated medical school in 89. I've been practicing basically 30 years. Awesome. And so um, I'd love to kind of go through one good example of an autistic patient and mm-hmm. um, and then one with ADHD. And, I, and I'll give you the choice of which we'd, you'd prefer to start with. Sure. Well, um, the uh, probably one of the most dramatic patients who had been diagnosed with autism Paul was 16 years old, and he had never spoken anything his entire life but gibberish. And uh, he, with one of my programs, he developed, he was able to start speaking in complete, total, appropriate sentences in five days from that treatment. And he, um, he did the program that I call Clarity Chair, which I want to talk more about. It was probably the most dramatic case where he just simply, uh, it was all in there. It was all in his head. He just never could get it out. And so once we were able to open that up, those pathways up, all the words just started coming out quite appropriately. And, uh, you know, I still get chills just thinking about how dramatic it was. And we've also had, I also have a biomedical program for autism. and have other cases where we treated uh, with treated the allergies or their gut or with the um, methylated B12 injections. I mean, one child with methylated B12 injection, again, who'd never spoken, and we gave him one injection and he left the office and the parents called less than five minutes later to say he had just said his first words. So with autism, it is like that puzzle that uh, we have to get all the pieces and figure out how they all go together. But when we do, we can often get dramatic changes for those children. And um, and we've seen lots and lots of cases like that. Uh, ADHD is just, for me, it's almost easy because to me, ADHD shouldn't even exist. It is a made-up psychiatric label, and often parents will say, oh, no, my child really does have ADHD. Well, they really do have the symptoms that we call ADHD, but those symptoms always have an underlying medical or educational problem that is causing that symptom. And the most dramatic is diet, just oftentimes changing a child's diet. Uh, The child who was having you know, pancakes and syrup for breakfast and French fries for lunch and drinking a glass of milk and um, not really getting a lot of protein in their diet. And when we got rid of the 
simple carbohydrates and got more protein more frequently into their diet, their behaviors just calmed down completely and they were truly like a different child. And then uh, allergies on my website, blockcenter.com, on the ADHD page, there's a video of a boy um, going through allergy testing. And you can see how we provoke his so-called ADHD symptoms, but then we neutralize them with the right dose of the right allergen. And it completely calms him down. Absolutely no symptoms. He can sit and focus and concentrate and behave. And so diet and allergies are two major components to that. Another one more recently that we've uh, seen is chronic strep or some called PANDAS, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep. And you can't really diagnose it unless you do a blood test for strep antibodies. And oftentimes a child will receive an antibiotic for a strep infection and nobody checks to see if the strep infection is actually gone. And, and sometimes it's not. And that strep then can attack their heart, their kidneys, and even their brain and cause problems with focus, concentration, behavior, all of those things that we call ADHD. But it's not ADHD. I don't use the label ADHD because if I find an allergy, then that's their diagnosis. So they don't have to deal with a psychiatric label or a psychiatric drug. So uh, it's important, I think, to find that underlying cause, treat the underlying cause, and give them their life and their future. Well, on, on pandas, um, because one of my sons kind of had that label, but the stories we heard from other people, either online or through doctors or one or two other people that uh, my wife met, the stories were much worse than anything we experienced. But that that's a that's a particular area of interest. And and my son grew out of all the symptoms um, with with puberty, which is what they what the doctors told us, you know, six eight years ago. And he, he had interesting because initially just some homeopathics took care of it. Then um, years ago, God, this has got to be eight nine years ago he was ticking really badly and it all went with the lunar cycles for him at least and gave him antibiotics one dose. And the next morning he woke up fine as if nothing had ever happened. And then, but you know, the effects of antibiotics don't last forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious, maybe a, a little more about the range of pandas patients. Cause that's a big thing up in the Northeast. Um, and they subsequently found Lyme in him and one of my other sons significant, and then some of the other co you know common co-infections as well. Right. Well, I'm finding pandas to be quite common here as well, and I do test every child for the antibodies, and um, I do use antibiotics for that because I think the I don't use antibiotics that often, but I will use them for life-threatening problems like pneumonia, say. Uh, and for strep, because I think strep can be life-threatening because it can attack the heart and it also can affect their, them emotionally through the, through the brain. And so I use antibiotics uh, generally for a month and then check the antibodies again to make sure that the, that the antibiotic is actually working. If it's not, we have to change medication because some, not all Medic antibiotics work for all strep. So just to give every child amoxicillin for strep isn't going to work for all children. And we make sure that they that their antibody levels go back to normal. And we usually see their behaviors or their tics or um, those kinds of things resolve when the strep is is really gone from their body. Now they can get strep again, but uh, yeah. If it starts up again, the parents are, are ready to jump on it quicker than having to go to 15 doctors to find out what it might be. So uh, how, how do you, you know, after antibiotics, how do you bring their gut back and, mm -hmm. and replenish? I mean, that is very, very important. And I wish we didn't have to use antibiotics, but um, there's... I do a comprehensive stool analysis 
to see what the good bacteria looks like. Do they have any bad bacteria in their gut? Do they have parasites, other things, digesting their food, uh, things like that. And then we support them with the right kinds of probiotics that they are missing. And they have to take those probiotics for a pretty long time to recolonize the gut. And then do you use prebiotics or anything else to support them or just through diet? Mostly diet. You know, getting them off the sugar is, is primary for everything I do. And you can't feed the yeast and expect the yeast to go away. And the yeast can have such a major effect, just like the strep can. And uh, it's important for the, the diet not to feed the problems. All right. So, so back to um, autism, maybe talk, you know, because we've, we've talked extensively about the Clarity Chair, but I'd love to kind of go back through your history over the last 30 years and how your practice has evolved and how you treated people in the past with autism and then work our way into how you discovered and came up with the clarity chair. Okay. Uh, be fascinating for listeners. Well, I've written seven books and uh, the first one was no more Ritalin. And then I updated that with no more ADHD. Um, the, um, my, my practice really grew from writing those books, I would say. Uh, I think that seemed to get me notoriety to a degree. And, and once the Internet came around, uh, people were finding me from all over the world and coming to Texas from all over the world for, for help. And um, this biomedical treatment I had for kids with autism was working quite well. But I also found that because they would start talking and doing other things, you know, stop the stimming oftentimes. But I noticed that whether it was with autism or ADHD, after the biomedical program had benefited, we could still see processing problems with the kids. They just seemed to, you know, not quite get it uh, with the world. They just weren't quite uh, in step, if you will. and. I realized that they needed something else. And originally I would send them and refer them off for things like auditory processing and vision therapy and sensory integration and all these programs. And they'd often come back and say, Oh my gosh, we are traveling miles, you know, every week to go to, to get help from these programs. It's costing us a fortune and they take months to years to find out if they're going to be helpful. And I saw their frustration and I thought there had to be a better way, something else that we could do to help these kids. And I just started experimenting with uh, different pieces of the programs with the concept of auditory processing and, and the concept of vision therapy and eventually put together the Clarity Chair, which is a reclining chair that um, the person lies on and is exposed to the sensory input from five different senses at one time. So when I was researching all these things, I found studies that if you engage two senses at once rather than one, the results were much better and faster. And so I thought, well, what if we engage five senses at once? What would happen? And I was shocked to find out that this program could work in just five days, that we were seeing dramatic changes in just five days. The uh, program is completely passive. The, so many of these other programs, the child has to be able to do the activities, do the exercises. And oftentimes they just can't, particularly if they're on the autism spectrum. They can't follow the directions. They can't you know, do the crawling or jumping jacks or whatever the program is requiring of them. And so this program, they just lie on the chair. We put headphones on them. They look at a special colored lights that change. And the chair moves in to invoke um, 
vestibular proprioception and kinesthetic. So they're getting those three plus the auditory plus the visual. And if you think about it, that is how we learn things. We don't isolate one sense at a time unless we're forced to because maybe we're deaf or blind. We don't learn to ride a bicycle uh, with our eyes closed. We use all of our senses at once. That's how we learn. And so invoking these five senses at one time just made an amazing difference. I mean, we, we had children like Paul, who in five days was speaking complete complex sentences. And many, many children have had said their first words while on the clarity chair. And we've also seen that with, with ADHD symptoms, where they can now focus and concentrate and sit still and listen. And just yesterday, talking to a patient who did the chair in January, and this young girl had chronic headaches, but she also had trouble reading. Uh, and that was part of the headache phenomenon that just trying to keep her eyes focused on the page so she didn't miss a line, skip a word, um, was causing her to have worse headaches. So after the clarity chair, the headaches went away. She could read beautifully and had no further problems at all. And, uh, so it, it's helped with a lot of different things. After I saw how successful it was for autism symptoms, I wondered if it would work for dementia. And uh, tried a gentleman who had, had been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And he in five days, he got his memory back. And it was just incredible. And I had a, a young girl, nine years old, who had been given medication that caused her to have complete total amnesia. Karis didn't know who she was, who her family members were. She couldn't even find the bathroom in her own home. That's how bad it was. And she was screaming and she was petrified because she had no idea who she was and why she was living with these strangers. And honestly, I didn't know whether Clarity Chair would help, but I knew it wouldn't hurt. So we put her on the chair on a Monday and in three days, not five days. She woke up on Thursday morning and had her complete memory back and has never lost it since. And it's been about four years now. So it definitely helps with memory. And uh, then the, the Clarity Chair is in some different centers around the country and even outside the country now. And uh, some of the doctors have used it for, for Parkinson's with good results for anxiety, for depression, for um, uh, PTSD. And then I did a small study on traumatic brain injury where 62% of symptoms completely resolved and 85% improved. And this was on people who had had traumatic brain injury years ago and had never completely recovered, but they tried everything that was available to them. So uh, allowing... The, the brain to get input from these five senses is just make, makes a tremendous difference for people um, and very, very rewarding to see the results of this. Hmm. And um, how, I mean, how, how many people have come at least on your chair? Um, how, how many people have come through this now? Or when, when did it first, you know, then did, did the current version come to market? The current version came to market about really four or five years ago. And, and I, how, how many people have you had through it? And do you have any kind of sense of percentage of people that benefited or? Well, I've had several hundred come through and honestly, it's rare for someone not to show some improvement in some way like not every child with autism starts speaking but parents often see other improvements like the little boy who he did nothing but self-stem and scream i mean that was his life and he didn't start speaking during the five days but he stopped the self-stemming and screaming and began taking his mom's hand and leading her to the uh, refrigerator and pointing to what he wants, which was huge for them. And and over time, he, he might 
it can, uh, can he will continue to improve. So what happens in those five days is just the beginning. It's like it's resetting the system so that now you can build on that and continue to improve. Uh, one nine-year-old had come in ADHD symptoms and he'd come in for my biomedical program and mom said, well, I'll bring him back in the summer. This was January, I think. Mom said she'd bring him back in the summer for, to do the clarity chair. She called in March and she said, well, the school says he's learning nothing. So I said, well, then why don't you just bring him now? If he's not learning anything and you're not going to lose anything by missing school. So she brought him and he went back and started making A's and B's. And it was, it for them, it was just amazing that he could do that after just five days. And the school was surprised and pleased. And so we have just numerous examples like that. Um, I have a man who is diagnosed with Parkinson's and he needed a cane. His biggest joy was attending A&M, Texas A&M football um, games. And he couldn't go because he couldn't walk up the ramp to get to a seat. And after Clarity Chair, he not only could walk up the ramp and get to his seat, but he, he said, we had to walk, we had to park a mile away. And I was able to walk that whole distance and walk up the ramp to get to my seat. So um, these are all you know major things for the person involved, um, whether it's a cure of, their, of all their symptoms or not. It just helps them have a better life. How how many of your patients that go in the clarity chair are also coming in for medical help? Well, a lot of them are. Um, most of them will come for the program, the whole program. Uh, occasionally, I've had someone say, "You know, I can't get my child to cooperate, whether it's on diet or or to do the allergy testing or anything else." Uh, so we do the clarity chair first and after they did the clarity chair, they changed so much that they were willing to be cooperative and do the other parts of the program as well. And in some of the, uh, clinics where the clarity chair is, they may not even have a biomedical program. Some do, but, but they don't all have that. And those who don't are still getting the same kind of results that we are. And what what are some of the U.S. cities where you have that? Um, well, in Texas, uh, Fort Worth, Austin, and Houston. There's uh, two in Florida. There's uh, three in Pennsylvania, one in New Jersey, one in the Chicago area. Um, let me think. There might be one more. <laughs> um, and for those overseas... There's one in Dubai, one in Egypt. There's soon to be one in um, several other countries in that part of the world. Libya, Algeria. Um, so we're, we're missing one on the West Coast and would love to have one out there for people, for the convenience of others. Yeah, but so just five days, it's not that hard to go to one of the clinics and just get it done. So, you know, on on some of these patients, maybe, um, you know, just maybe talk a little bit about how you discover the underlying problems. Putting aside the clarity chair for a second, from a from a biomedical standpoint how you look at a patient, someone comes in and you, you know, by all means use a case study or two or how, how you approach it. You know, they come in, you start looking and saying, okay, they present with these symptoms. Um, I need to do this testing and maybe just kind of how you think about a, a, a patient when you come in, when, when they come into your practice. Well, first of all, I have a very long history form. It's about 18 pages long, and it goes from birth to now and also has a week's worth of diet in it. So I go through all of that, and that gives me a tremendous amount of information. 
uh, even the birth was the was there any birth trauma? Was there breastfeeding? Uh, how many vaccines has the child had? Were there any reactions to them? Uh, then uh, what does the diet look like? And go through that and, uh, and always start with the diet because that can make the most impact, the fastest and the cheapest. And so we make those changes. And it's not uncommon for the child to have typical allergy symptoms like a runny nose or skin rashes or asthma, but it also can be that the child just has brain allergies. And the allergy cells that are in the nose that causes the runny nose or on the skin and causes a skin rash are called mast cells. And they are in every organ of our body, including our brain. So we can have allergies that manifest just about anywhere. And going back to my daughter, that was actually the underlying cause of her bladder infection were, were allergies. And that's what that doctor figured out. And uh, nobody had even thought about that before, that allergies could cause that problem. So uh, I look at those things. We do some lab tests, uh, stool tests, tests for uh, strep. Um, some kids have anemia, and nobody even had recognized that. And then um, when we treat the things we find, we usually see major differences. It's not unusual for a family to you know, be very, very good and strict about the diet, and maybe six months later call back and say, well, Johnny's acting up again or can't study again, and and I ask them about the diet, and it turns out they reverted back to the previous diet. And it's just an easy thing to do for a lot of people. So I had to remind them that this is not a diet. It is a lifestyle, and they need to go back to eating the way that I'd recommended and a healthy way. And then the symptoms resolve again. So um, it's... You know, it, it, it's not that different for, for each child, but there are some specific differences. Not every child will have, um, well, every child has a poor diet that I see, I would say. It's, I rarely see a child that eats the way they should. And um, also I look for the genetic mutation of MTHFR, which uh, can also put them at risk for having these kinds of symptoms. and that requires some dietary changes as well and some nutritional supplements. I also use magnesium injections for a lot of things. Uh, magnesium is, um, well, it's to me one of the most wonderful minerals there is. I use the injections for, um, it'll stop a migraine. It helps with depression and anxiety. It lowers blood pressure. It prevents heart attacks. It uh, prevents menstrual cramps, muscle aches and pains. Magnesium just does amazing things. It helps focus and concentration. I've even had young children feel so good after magnesium shots that they asked for another one, which is pretty, pretty wild. Um, the problem, though, with magnesium injections is that all commercially available magnesium contains aluminum, and we don't want to be injecting aluminum into people. So I have mine compounded. Uh, in uh, my area so that it doesn't contain magnesium. And it's important for people to know. Aluminum, yeah. And often ask for a magnesium injection. Oh, and asthma. It'll stop asthma also. So we we'll often teach parents how to give the shots themselves. So if the asthma starts up or the migraine starts up, they can just give the shot, whether it's on the weekend or, or other time. It, it, the the MTHFR thing. I'm. I mean, I'm. I have both. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, and uh, I think most of my family does. Uh, I think all three boys as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so all sub all B supplements are methylated and whatever else we do, um, which I used to be much more clear on, but my wife kindly takes care of all that. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, I mean, how, how much of an issue is that? And, and for what percentage would you say of the population that you see? 
Well, it's thought that about 50% of the population have at least one of that gene. And in my practice, though, it's probably 98, 99% because people that come and find me are those with chronic health problems. And so they're more likely to have that gene. And I see it very commonly. We test everybody for it. And um, back with the autistic population, um, the question was, is it because the methyl, methylated B12 shots helped so many kids, was it the methylation part or was it the B12 part? I think it's actually both. But I think the MTHFR was not important um, until maybe after World War II. When we, you know, all food was organic until fairly recently. We didn't have genetically modified foods. We had cleaner air. We had cleaner water. And I think that people could didn't have as many toxins. We only had maybe either no vaccines or two vaccines with toxins in them. Today, kids have something like 75 vaccines with all have toxins in them. So their body has to be able to get rid of those things. And if they have that MTHFR gene, then the ability to detoxify is interfered with. And too many toxins means they can't get rid of them. They back up in their system. They cause problems. So I think where, you know, my parents had to have the gene for me to get the gene. So, but it didn't bother them. Uh, Today, kids who have the gene are greatly affected by it. I think it's very significant now. That's amazing. So almost your entire population has, wow. Wow, wow. So what what else what else do you think? I mean, I um you know, I know the clarity chairs is 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 a very big part of your practice now. But what what else am I not asking? And, and what do you look at when you do your work as you try to grow and um because I know I know you're a lifelong learner. I think one of the things that I've enjoyed learning about and putting in practice is treating thyroid hypothyroidism. Um, before we had thyroid lab tests, doctors used symptoms to decide not only if someone had a thyroid problem, but how best to treat them, what level of medication. And in the late 60s, thyroid lab values came along. And after that, it was like, if your thyroid lab tests are normal, you don't have a thyroid problem. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. And it's basic science that the lab tests for thyroid only measure the pituitary gland uptake of thyroid hormone. And the pituitary works different than every other cell in our body for thyroid uptake. So to for the inactive T4 to get into the pituitary cells, it's through uh, passive diffusion. So that it just goes in really easily. And once that T4 is in the cell, it has to convert to the active form, the T3, and about 100% of it does in the pituitary gland. And that's what our lab tests are testing. But in every other cell in the body, for the inactive T4 to get into the cell, it takes active energy-dependent active diffusion. And then once in the cell, only about 50% of it converts to the active form. And if you have one of about a dozen different health problems, two of which are aging and stress, which I think everybody has these days, then even less than 50% of your T4 becomes active T3. So we're measuring a perfect system and the rest of the body is imperfect. And we don't have a way to measure what's really going on thyroid wise. And we've got over 200 studies in the medical literature saying we should be using symptoms still to decide thyroid treatment. And that's turned out to be the case. I've seen so many, particularly women, they're obese and they just feel like their thyroid doesn't work. And their doctors have told them, you got to diet, you got to exercise. And they're like, I've tried all that. It didn't work. And sure enough, they've got 
I've got a list of about 45 different thyroid symptoms and they might have 30 of them. And we treat the thyroid and bam, they're, they're new people. They're, they're so happy and they're so, they feel so good. And undertreated thyroid is one of the major causes of heart disease. So it's extremely important for the thyroid to work right. And we shouldn't just be using thyroid labs to determine that. That's interesting because I know several people with thyroid issues and they're on um, some thyroid medication and it helps some things, but not, doesn't look like it fundamentally changes anything. Well, most doctors still prescribe T4, which is Synthroid. And again, if you're not converting adequately to the active form, you could take tons of T4 and never achieve success with it. So the studies also said that everyone should take some T3 uh, just to be sure you're covering your bases. And um, it's, you know, even doctors who specialize in this field are unaware of those those articles in the medical literature sometimes. So how do you keep learning? Where, where do you keep? Well, my patients challenge me. That's one thing. Um, the young girl with the, um, who lost her memory from the medications developed a, a diagnosed with a blood disorder and the doctor, she saw, um, prescribed birth control pills. And she's, you know, now at this point, 12 years old and mom didn't want to do that. So she called me, well, it was not something I normally treated, but I, researched it, you know, and found out there was a very safe medication she could use. And they switched to that and she's been fine ever since. So it's that one curiosity, I guess. And, um, I, I love what I do. I, I can't imagine, I think it would be boring just to listen to somebody's symptom and write a prescription. I think the understanding, the physiology and the biochemistry and, and understanding that there's something going on in this body that's causing it not to work right. And can we figure it out? And that's that medical detective in me that uh, can't just settle for the superficial. Um, and so I research, I read and constantly, you know, patients come in, they may not have something I've ever treated before, but I'm going to try to figure out what's causing their problem and fix it if I can. And I think that comes from my daughter, you know, my daughter's experience and also my mother's experience that um, seeing that doctors often choose to limit what they do and it's not always for the best of the patient. And I just don't want to be one of those doctors. Curious with your mother, did, did you figure out exactly what it was or were you able to just support her and then her body was able to kind of take care of itself? Well, I mean, she had had uterine cancer um, 10 years before the lung cancer and the uterine cancer we know was from unopposed estrogen. She came into menopause in the era when every doctor gave women Primarin and no progesterone. And it wasn't until later that they found out it caused uterine cancer. So she was one of those people. And her uterine cancer was successfully treated. Um, But 10 years later, when she was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, it was the same cell type. Now, we don't know for sure that it was a cell from the uterine cancer, but it was definitely the same cell type as that uterine cancer was. And I suspect it probably was that. So the support was really, uh, it just, she had lots of um, vitamin C, IVs, uh, other nutrients in them. Uh, She did visualization and hypnosis. When she first did visualization, she would say, you know, she's really killing those, those, uh, she had a little Pac-Man eating up the cancer. But when she was hypnotized, the, the doctor found that she only had one Pac-Man eating the cancer on a subconscious level. So he was able to bring the conscious and subconscious together so that even on a subconscious level, she had thousands of Pac-Man eating up the cancer. And 
uh, and we we also used an immune uh, it was an immune uh, treatment that um, they took they stopped being used in humans um, a little bit after that it was still available veterinarians still used it but um, it was called staph lysage and it would you give a little injection under the skin kind of like an allergy test and and you keep doing that until you get an immune response from the body. And that was supposed to help. I basically just looked for everything and anything I could find that might that help, it help one person. If it helped one person, we'll throw it in the pot and see if it'll help her. And, um, and it did. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but she was that kind of person, too. She was a very positive thinker and uh, always believed that, the body can heal itself and um she was the right candidate for it let's put it that way and she was amazing i mean she went through a really tough time because she did do chemo and radiation but even her doctor said that would at best give her six months and you know and it was hard it was really really hard but she believed in it so she needed to do it um if, if i didn't believe in it i wouldn't do it but um she she did, and even though it destroyed her white blood count, um, two other things happened. The the drug that helps uh, white blood cells grow was came to market, and yeah. also the drug for yeah. non came to market yeah. at the exact same time she needed those. So there's a lot of things that fell fell in place. Um, and, and 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 by the way, my mother. Um, had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 91, right after Neupogen came to market. And that, that saved her too. Yeah. 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 That was, um, it really made a difference. Yeah. That was a good drug. <laughs> Not all drugs are good. That So one, one last question, which you just alluded to is in, in what a percent or, or any way you want to look at it in terms of trauma and the psychology of illness um, and how much that plays a role in, in treatment or in, in what you um, suggest your patients do outside of your practice, you know, but how often do you see that and suspect it? I assume there's a big chunk of that in your intake, although I don't want to be presumptuous. Well, I'm I'm a fee for service doctor. I, I don't take insurance, though we give them a super bill they can file with their insurance. And the reason for that is that I want the decisions to be made between the patient and myself. And insurance companies don't always pay for the, the kind of medicine that you need. They just they're going to pay for the medicine that's least expensive, perhaps. And so, um, when you're paying out of pocket, you I've already decided to do the work or you wouldn't do it in most cases. So I think that takes care of one of those issues that they've already decided they're going to, they, they want what I have to offer. They're going to do the work. And uh, that I think is a major hump over the psychological part of that. And, um, and I do try to keep them positive. I, They'll often tell me, oh, thank you so much. You, you know, and I'm like, after the first visit, I'm like, I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> thank me after I've done something, please. But they feel like they got listened to. They feel like they got hope. And oftentimes, you know, that's all people really want. Or, and they don't get that too often in, from other offices. So, um, And what about, what about the role of trauma in bringing on an illness? Do you, do you see that? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not real big on psychiatric illness per se, but the mind and body are so connected. If you can heal yourself from cancer, you know, then the opposite can certainly be true. Um, I remember a friend of my parents, he was in a terrible car wreck and had a brain injury. And, you know, a few just a couple of years later, he was diagnosed with cancer. And I, at the time, I always thought the brain cancer and I always thought they must have been connected. Uh, nobody can really prove that, but I, I still think they were connected. And, um, but is it psychological or is it the damage done in the accident created the cell growth, the inappropriate cell growth? It's hard to say, but I think if you 
Oh, and one of the areas I work in and written a book about is, is depression. Just because you're depressed doesn't mean you have depression, which is the title of my book. And it's important there again to not look at a psychiatric disorder in and of itself as the problem. Oh, you are, you feel sad or depressed. You must have depression, which is a psychiatric, psychiatric diagnosis. In my book, I go into all the, different underlying medical reasons why someone might feel depressed. And of course, hypothyroidism is a big one, untreated. And it's important when I explain that to people, uh, they feel so much relief that they're not, they don't have a psychiatric disorder. They have a medical disorder. And I just think that's a big part of my practice is uh, not putting weight into psychiatry, but into the physical body. Awesome. Well, this has been wonderful. Um, I will um, put the link uh, for your practice in the Clarity Chair and uh, anything else you want, we can talk offline and I'll make sure that gets on the website. And okay. is there any, any last words you would like to say for listeners? Well, I think um, nobody should have to go to medical school to save their family, but I think... Um, and a lot of people say, oh, you got to ask the doctor the right questions. But I think even more important than that is knowing what the right answer should be. Because, you know, people will say, well, I asked the doctor if there were any side effects to this medication. And they said, no. Uh, well, that's not the right answer. Um, with the Internet, as they say, ignorance is a choice. And I think we should all manage our health the way we handle you know, the care of our automobile, at least that well. And uh, we have all this information at our fingertips. How do you know what's correct when you go online? How much of it is uh, false and how much of it is true? I, I give people credit to knowing and understanding their bodies and knowing when they hear something that makes sense to them that it's probably right. Yeah. I wish I had my doctors when I was younger listen. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> That's why I went to the other side years ago. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very, very much for your time. Um, you can, I'll, I'll just mention that you can find um, Dr. Block at uh, Block Center, B-L-O-C-K Center.com. And there are a lot of resources there. Uh, I would like to say that you speak all over, but in this COVID world, I'm Assuming that your your speaking um, appearances are are down <laughs> or virtual, or virtual at this point. Yeah. And there's actually, I think there's quite a bit of material from your past speeches. There used to be, I remember finding floating on the web. If people want to go hunt on YouTube or elsewhere, isn't there? Um, there, there are there are lots of things. And I also just uh, I was working on it before COVID and developed a home program for treating ADHD without drugs. And you can. Find that on my website on blockcenter.com. If people really don't want to come to see me here, uh, and that's fine because I'm doing telemedicine right now, but they can uh, get the home program and do a lot of the work themselves at home with their child. If they're home anyway, it's a good time to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And then, um, of course, all your books are on Amazon, I believe. And I have several of them and, and the ones I, I have, I've, I've read and, and they, they, well, for me, they were because I read them a while ago are fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So, thank you again for your time. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.